Hey there, adventurer. I appreciate you taking the time to do an investigation check and dig into the archives of the show. I wanted to let you know that this is an old episode back when the show was called The Hard Thing Podcast. The topics are still the same, though the format and some of the names are different. If instead you are coming back to The Hard Thing Podcast, well, surprise, we changed our name and some of our branding. Feel free to hang out in the archives and listen to all the wonderful old episodes of The Hard Thing Podcast or take on a new adventure by listening to some of our current episodes. Either way, happy adventuring. This is The Hard Thing Podcast. Today, we are overcoming average. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Hard Thing Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you overcome average, step up above mediocrity, all by doing hard things. I'm really excited to show you today's conversation. Today is our Monday show, and you're going to hear from me, your host, Justin Lewis, as well as a guest. And on our Thursday show, you actually hear from me and my co-host, Ty Crockett, but I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. Uh, I want to tell you about today's guest. Let's just jump right into it. Uh, today, I talk with Terry Rich. He is a fascinating man. He has years of experience in business. Uh, he actually started his own business. He was also in the uh, cable TV business before it was popular. I, I didn't even know that was a thing. But uh, he shares his experience of working in a zoo and helping that become profitable, being asked by the governor to do that, as well as being asked by the governor to run his, his state's lottery. And also working in the largest lottery fraud situation, I guess, that's happened in the nation. It was a fascinating conversation. We talk a lot about just failing, doing things, trying things, having big ideas, and making it happen. It was a fun conversation. And uh, without further ado, I want to share with you my conversation with Terry Rich. All right. Well, thank you for being on my show, Terry. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. It's going to be fun. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, meet new friends and, and talk about success one way or another. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, well, Terry, let me ask you the question I ask all my guests to start out with. Terry, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? I think stepping into starting my own company and starting being an entrepreneur. I was in a company. I started on the farm. You know, you learn how to work hard when you're growing up and then ultimately out of college, started in cable television before cable television was cool. And uh, I had some really good leaders in that company. I stayed there for 20 years and I thought that would be my, my lifelong job that I'd retire there when I was 60s. And lo and behold, at 40 years of age, they sold the company, which was good because I had stock options and all those sort of things. So all of a sudden at 40, I made the goals I'd hoped to make when I was 60. And I thought, oh my gosh, what do I do now? And I opted to start my own company. And it actually turned into one of the most fun, exciting things I've ever done because cable television had programming and it had uh, all of the fun things. It was a big growth industry. Everything we touched seemed to turn to gold. So it was really entrepreneurial in itself. But stepping in where you're paying your own bills and trying to make the money yourself, that was a, that was a pretty major leap, but turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. Wow. I have to ask, so you said you grew up, you know, on a farm, and then you decided to go off to college. Um, I'm really curious what made you decide to, to kind of leave the farm and, and go that route looking for something else. Actually, I thought I'd be a math major. Uh, I, I went in, passed out of a year of calc, year of math, I'd had things going well in college, but 
I realized I did my first student teaching. It was boring. It wasn't what I really enjoyed doing. And uh, a guy said, hey, you can go over here and make a living talking. I thought, sounds good to me. So I started in the TV and radio business and started with a local radio station. And I really had a lot of fun with that. And all my buddies uh, put the resumes out early enough. I wasn't ambitious at the time enough to get my resume out to get a broadcast television. So I started in cable television. And come to find out, it was probably the smartest thing I've ever done because they couldn't pay me a lot. They could only pay me in stock options and a little bit of salary. And ultimately, uh, it, it went really, really well. But I had three major breaks in my lifetime. One was while I was working for cable television, I had the opportunity to do a promotion for my little hometown farm community. And I landed on the Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And that really took my career off. Uh, the, the second was to start my own company and really do a lot with HBO and a whole bunch of different uh, shows. And finally, uh, I, I, of course, I did the, the zoo in between, helped turn around a zoo, and then ultimately uh, helped solve the largest lottery fraud in U.S. history when I became the lottery director for a state. So all of those were completely different careers, and I got to decide when I was going to do those uh, by myself uh, uh, under, my own, uh, under my own gun, and it's, it's really been a fun life. Wow. I have to say, I did pick up on those last two, the lottery fraud and the zoo. And the, don't you worry, I'm, I'm asking questions about those because I can't not ask questions about a zoo and, sure. and lottery fraud. Um, you you, you want to know something else, yeah, go ahead. Justin? Go ahead. People, people, when I tell this, before I get started, people, I have so many uh, people who are just getting started in business or trying to figure out how do I take the first step, say, man, you've had a fun career. All these good things have happened. You've made money. You've done a lot of fame and fortune, all this thing. Didn't you ever screw up? You know what? <laughs> I screwed up many times. And the very first time I did was when I uh, got out of college and went to work for the cable television company. And when I worked for that company, um, uh, I, I noticed that as I was on camera that I didn't have a five o'clock shadow. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to write the razor company and tell them I'll do a TV commercial for you. So I sat down wrote out a letter, put a stamp on it, and sent it off to New York to Schick and said, I love your track two razor. I don't have this five o'clock shadow. I got so excited. You know, I got enthused because I was thinking, wouldn't it be fun to be on national television? And I think it's the same feeling you may have if you're trying to play Powerball thing. And what happens if I win the big dollar amount? Right. Two weeks to the day, I got the letter. And you know what it said? Dear Mr. Rich, expressing your complete satisfaction with your track two razor, we didn't make that. Gillette did. Here's their address. I wrote the wrong company. Yeah, I failed. But you know what? That inner drive that I got from that failure really helped me out. And even when I, and I got the Carson show, when they asked me to help in little Cooper, Iowa, I sent out 44 letters saying, hey, Cooper, Iowa wants to adopt a celebrity for one day for this little centennial. 43 of the 44 letters failed. Only one response came back, and that was from United Press International. And they put it on the national wires. And just like a YouTube viral video today, the thing took off. We got to go out and be on Carson in front of 20 million people. And that really took my career off. But if you don't fail, if you don't stretch yourself, I would say it's better to have tried and failed than to succeed at doing nothing. <laughs> and you think a government worker, you know, succeed at doing nothing. They just <laughs> job. I love risk. I love taking risks, but I like taking calculated risks as, as you find success in life. So with all your experiences, what advice would you give to people in order to really measure the risk and calculate it and know when they're stepping too far? 
you know you're stepping too far if you spend all your money. If you're buying, taking all of your life savings and buying lottery tickets, that's not a good idea. I found in being an entrepreneur, I tried to take five or 10% of, of the monies that I had. I never ever risked 100% of it. And that's tough for a lot of people because one, if, if it's in their heart and they think it really is going to work, but I find trying to start two or three different things at once and finding what works and what's good that's fun to do uh, is, is just as important. So uh, when I say calculated risk, I took a lot of risk and I failed uh, quite a few times, but I never lost the whole farm when I did fail. And I learned a little lesson later in life too from my granddaughter. She came over and she was only one, one and a half and she pulled herself over, crawled over and pulled herself up on the, on the couch and you know what? She took her first step. And what happened? Boom! She fell over. That's right. She fell over. Well, what did she do? She pulled herself over again, pulled herself up, and took two steps. But boom! She fell again. Well, I realize so many people do just one project, the one thing they really, really, really want to do, and fail the first time and say, yep, I can't do it. I don't have any success in that. Failure is really the first step. You got to learn by that and then grow and make it even better to get to success. Wow, that is very impactful. Failure is the first step. I think uh, you could write a book about that if you ever if you ever get around to that. I already have. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's called Dare to Dream, Dare to Act. Because the other thing that I found is in leading CEOs for years, and you have a lot of employees. How do you get the new ideas out, especially in today's diverse world? And, and it, uh, I always find that life lessons kind of teach you new things. I like to have a little wine now and then. So I went out to California to see what the, how they made wine. And I thought, you know, the, the people who made wine just walked out the back door and picked out the grapes in their vineyard and they got this award-winning wine. Well, not at all. They take a big old bushel basket or a big old basket and they go get some grapes over here, grapes over there, grapes, and they test them all to see which ones. A very diverse group of grapes all together to find that one grape or that one vineyard outside of theirs that has the award-winning grapes. Well, what that told me was when I do brainstorming, it's a two-step process. When you bring people together, say, okay, let's come up with ideas. Well, the first thing you have is no judgment. The second is make sure people are around you that are diverse. If everybody looks like you, same age, same gender, same uh, race, uh, our audience is so diverse today across the United States. You got to have all these ideas, just like I hey, get all the grapes in to get that award-winning grape. You need to have a hundred ideas to get the one that is going to be the million dollar idea. But you don't judge when you're getting the ideas. You're just getting all the ideas together and putting them aside. And then you get everybody around the table. And then the accountant can say, no, that's going to cost too much. Legal can say that. But everybody together decide which one is the highest in priorities. You're prioritizing all the, again, back to the grapes. Everybody gets to decide which grapes the best. And when you decide as a team, you usually have success in execution of that idea. I think that's really insightful, especially because you can also apply that going back to our conversation just a second ago about calculated risk. When you come up with, you know, 100 to 200 ideas you really lessen your risk when you're able to will them down and really figure out, okay, this one is definitely a non-starter. This one's got some legs. I, I, I see how that simple principle can be applied in so many different aspects, even in trying to figure out how to solve personal problems, you know, or get a job. Yeah. Uh, I tell anybody that's looking for a job, they say, 
I want to go to work as a, as an IT specialist or a programmer or uh, some job at Google. I want to get in on a Google. Well, if they only put one application into Google, they're not going to get their dream job. I say apply to 100. Apply to every place you can because, one, you get the experience of the interview. Two, uh, you're going to get job interviews if you do 100, and, and it may be the job that gets you to the next level, to the Google, but back to where you want to be. But you can always say no. Remember, it's your life when you're doing these interviews and you're going out looking for jobs or trying to make someone successful. So go do a hundred of those, knowing that it takes a hundred to get the one really prime one that you want. And I, I learned that door-to-door -door selling cable television. No one thought cable would ever, you know, who's going to pay more than six bucks for cable television? You get four channels, you get everything you want today. And that's what I kept hearing. But I knew that the odds were if you did a hundred sales calls, you'd make two sales. But the real success comes if you make the door knocks and you knock on two doors and the first two buy, do you continue or do you quit? And those that continue, that's where the real gravy icing on the cake and you really make the additional money and, and uh, become very successful. That's really impressive, especially because, I mean, you think about um, on the show, I've talked about how I, some, I believe that you can either choose the results or the process or the methods. And I think that sometimes you have to, you know, either choose the results or choose the methods. For example, if you're wanting to lose weight, Maybe don't focus so much on the weight rather than focusing on being in the gym every single day, choosing your calorie counting every single day, and then the results take care of themselves and, and you know, vice versa. So I think you're very right on the money with that, what you said there. You also hear the term success breeds success. Mm -hmm. If you can get in and you can find you can lose the one or two pounds like you talked about, that gives you the meaning that take the next step. Um, there's something about, I, every, I'm a little superstitious. I, I really was way before the, I, I ran and ran the lottery. Um, I would find that uh, if I listen, I, the song that I had was Earth, Wind, and Fire, Fantasy. When I listened to that, I could come up with all sorts of ideas. And it wasn't because that song all of a sudden generated ideas. It was it gave me the mindset. Or if I wear a certain, if anytime I have an interview, I've got a suit that I always wear, right? If I, if I do something special, I wear that. Um, and again, it's not so much of that's bringing me good luck as it in my head. I know I've had success with that before, so I'm going to do it again. Yeah, I, it's kind of a question of eliminating variables. You know, when you have a specific suit that you know looks good and you feel good wearing it, that's one variable you don't need to worry about when you go into a high stakes interaction. So yeah, Absolutely. Right Confidence is important too. You know, when you go into any interview or meet with anybody, looking people in the eye is, is one thing that gives them reassurance. And the other thing that I, was a fun thing I learned, uh, uh, the show's still on, 60 Minutes, a guy that used to coach the big CEOs on 60 Minutes of what to look and how to react, even if things are bad. He had one thing that I learned from him that was so important. And the basics of that is when you're talking to someone on TV, and actually I do, and I'm talking on a radio or doing a newspaper interview or any place, simply raise your eyebrows up a little bit because now you've got a very open face and people, even when you do that, you yourself kind of smile because your eyebrows are up. So somebody says, yeah, but three people got killed at your factory yesterday. You say, you know, we stress success and you show empathy because your eyebrows are up. But most uh, CEOs or people who are in business like to look, make the serious look and their eyebrows are down. You look sinister when you do that, he said. And nothing else. It just helps me and my mental capabilities of, 
as people ask me questions. Ronald Reagan was a good one on this. He just basically, I, and Barack Obama, eyebrows up, just gives you that open face and open mind to, I'm ready for anything. Wow. I'm surprised at how challenging that is. Like, you know, as I was listening to you, I keep trying to hold my eyebrows up, but they keep sliding down. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, yeah, you, you try not to be, but just kind of think about yeah. what do you want to, you know, if you have the attitude, ask me anything, I can handle it, even right. though outside your your stomach's boiling. And I, I think most people don't realize in leadership or entrepreneurship, being in charge, is that employees that work around you also want to do everything they can to help you be successful. I always say that when the king said, oh, poop, and everybody headed for the bathroom, uh, you kind of realize that employees listen to what the leaders say and want to do that. So I'd get out of the car when we ran the lottery. I'd look up and say, oh, my God, I'm in charge of this $350 million uh, facility each year. And it scared the daylights out of me. But as soon as I opened the door, you walk in with confidence. You make a decision. You don't, you don't ponder because people like leadership. People, good leaders, will make a decision. And uh, when you make a decision – it's amazing, even though you're a little scared and skeptical, whether that you're taking that risk of that idea to try it. But the employees often could pull it off because they're very good. That's why you hire them. They've got the expertise to do something good. They'll actually go out and get it done. You'll say, oh, my God, that worked. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's simple to say, but harder to execute that to be a good leader, first thing you need to do is start leading despite what you're feeling inside. And I think that's exactly what you're saying right there. Absolutely. Kind of stepping back a little bit, you said that your first job in broadcast radio, right? No, it was cable. It was radio. in cable television. Cable yes. television, right? I did rock and roll radio on the weekends, if you couldn't tell, but I, <laughs> it was television actually, cable television. television before cable was cool. Ted Turner and a whole bunch. We got to actually help start MTV, wow. CNN, all of those channels over the years. It was really fun. That's impressive. And you said they couldn't pay you very much, so. What ultimately, because in, in a way, that's kind of one of the dominoes at the very, very beginning that set you on this trajectory. What made you accept a job that you knew wasn't paying you comparatively well? Well, uh, I didn't grow up real wealthy. Parents weren't wealthy, but I never knew it. I just knew I was happy and I enjoyed being around people. And when I got in this company, uh, anytime they'd ask somebody to do something, they'd have somebody to do it. I always raised my hand and said, hey, I'll volunteer. And it became fun because they would then give me the good, good fun things to do along with the bad. But the money uh, wasn't as important because I didn't have any money. I also worked hard because my dad uh, went through the depression and said, take on no debt. So I had zero debt, which helps a lot. In today's society, most people have some college debt. Trying to pay that off, you have to make big money. So you go to work for the big, big money rather than what you really enjoy. And I think I had the opportunity to do cable television after I get into it, see how much fun it was and then how fast it grew and how easy it was. And I was in on the starting ground floor that uh, maybe in some senses I got lucky, but I guess I didn't, I've never really understood. I, I, I don't care how much you make and I've had great success over the years. Still not enough. I want to go make it again because once you've had success and being an entrepreneur or being in a company that's had success, there's a feeling that you, it's, it's like cocaine, man. It just, you got to do it again. You want to keep going because it is so fun when things work and they're your ideas and something you did was successful. Yeah. I, I, I could imagine it would be like riding in a, a car, like a really nice car 
that you've put in all the blood, sweat, and tears to restore or build from the ground up, and you're on the highway and you're cruising and the tunes are going and you're feeling good. I bet that's exactly how it feels. It feels so good. And, and you know, I, I think as I hire people, people whose parents were really successful, they have a lot of good, if you, if you manage them correctly, they'll be also really successful, but most kind of had, had grew up with money in their hand where those that didn't and earn their way through uh, self-made seem to have even a, a better attitude and, and, Obviously, there seemed to be a lot more pride because then they made it themselves. Yeah. And I want to kind of point out two factors that I think were what allowed you to be successful, but then what also were what allowed you to be successful as an entrepreneur. See, you said that you worked hard because you grew up in a household where you learned how to work hard, but you had specific expectations. So you were willing to do extra. And I think the, the work hard and the willing to do extra is exactly what allowed you to step out on your own as an entrepreneur and, and still succeed even when someone's not telling you exactly what to do all the time. That's true. I, and I never really had, I probably did a couple of times, had hourly uh, wages, but I usually was paid salary, which I think is better because when they needed help, some people would say, hey, I'm not paid to do that. That's not in my job description. Baloney, <laughs> I'll do anything because I'm going to learn something new whenever I do something different. Uh, just like this podcast. I mean, I've already, I, I'm, 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 you know, I learn new things, I hear new things. And, and that's the real beauty of life is lifelong learning. And, uh, and knowing that I, I don't know everything. Uh, and I love, I love learning each and every day. Wow. Uh, I am just kind of picking apart your, your story and kind of how you came up. Uh, it, it sounds like you were really blessed with humility as in a, a humility to understand that, you know, you're not going to go from zero to 100 in a day, a humility to understand that an opportunity that doesn't look glamorous is still a good opportunity. Uh, especially cause I wanted to ask, you said you were able to do a local promotion uh, and that's really what helped catapult your career. Uh, I mean, I can think of a lot of people, my generation, you know, who spend all their time on Instagram, but then they wouldn't, dream of doing a local promotion because it wasn't big enough or, or, or whatnot. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask what also made you want to do that local promotion, even though at the time it might not have seemed like national television, if that makes sense. Well, when they called me, it was a farmer that called me. This little town only had 50 people. This guy farmed right outside of it, but it's where I grew up. So I had some heart there. So I really had nothing to lose. They weren't paying me anything. And I thought, well, let's get together and let's do that creative brainstorming where you get that bushel basket and put all those ideas in it. And he'd say this and that. And finally he said, well, you're our most famous person. I said, well, geez, let's adopt somebody. And that's how the idea started. Then we thought, well, geez, if we adopt a celebrity, we've got to give them something. So we thought, well, we got a local uh, oil and lube place. We'll give them a free oil and lube. Uh, we've got uh, a street. We'll name a street after him. And then we thought, well, they got cemeteries. Let's give them a cemetery plot. And we thought, well, we got to interview them. How do we, how are we going to judge them? So, Ask them if they own a pair of bib overalls. They ever chewed tobacco? Know the difference between an apple pie or a, and a cow pie? Or you know, Isaac Cooper was a founder of Cooper, who was buried in Isaac Cooper's grave. So I just wrote all that down, stuck it in a in that letter that went out to 44 places, and only one responded. But it was so fun to do. I didn't care whether anybody responded. I just hoped we had a little local radio station with covers. And lo and behold, I get the call from a talent coordinator from the Tonight Show. And he says, hey, he said, uh, we like this story. We'd like to do something, but you got to promise we're first because 
uh, real people or a lot of uh, reality shows are going to go after this. And I said, hell yes. Carson, <laughs> Tonight Show calls, you get first. Yeah. Well, when it's all said and done, they talked about uplinking the entire show. They were going to guarantee us front cover of Newsweek time. This all happened within two weeks. Just wow. absolutely blew up. And during the centennial, we had 12,500 people show up, three-hour parade, including ABC, CBS, NBC, the Today Show, Good Morning America, PBS, and just people from all over the country laughing and having fun. And we just really played that up. But the day after they left, all that publicity was gone. And, and you crave when you get one of those, if you ever hit a viral video, how do I do that again? Or, you know, an artist, somebody that sings uh, the number one hit song, how do they get another one like that? So I really didn't have that, except I had this idea when I worked at the cable company, we were doing HBO free previews where we would show your free HBO. And then at the end, we'd just say, hey, call us 1-800-CABLE-TV. And so I started thinking, I failed all those times with those letters, but I got the idea they could do a satellite uplink from our location here. Why couldn't I do that for our company? Well, I pitched it and the company said, sure, try it. That weekend, we sold $15 million worth of HBO across the realm. That obviously helped my career immensely. And I used that to go on to work for HBO, Stars, Encore, uh, ESPN, all the pay-per-view boxing matches in the 90s. And I just got up to about 50 and I'd made the money and done all the traveling. I had kids. I said, I got, you know, I guess it's midlife crisis at 50. But I said, I got to do something different. And I called, got a call from the governor and said, hey, they're going to close the zoo. The zoo is owned by the city. Would you be interested in running a zoo? And I thought, well, grew up on a farm, but I don't think I've ever run a zoo with giraffes. So I accepted. And man, was that fun. Completely different. They were losing $600,000 a year. But go back to, I failed 43 of the 44 times. If I hadn't sent, if I'd only sent one letter out, I wouldn't have got to be on the Carson show. We were the first 20 minutes. I wouldn't had all the money from in the cable television business, all of the things that went along with that. And then I got to run a zoo. Wow. And I want to also remind our audience, I'm, I'm guessing um, this was at a time when writing 44 letters was a little bit more difficult than copying and pasting, right? <laughs> That's right. It wasn't like I could put 44 different emails from a yeah. from a PR news newsletter. I had to go to the uh, to the library in the next town because Cooper didn't have a library and go through a book. And I ran out after about five of anybody in Iowa. And so I I finally saw one in London and one in Miami. And I just sent it any place I could get because I had 44 stamps too. <laughs> wow, I I love that because honestly that's just uh, a lesson in in trying and, and sending it out and see what comes back. You could say. That's you know, right. Like if you like have the book. job hunt, hundred, yeah. hundred calls to job hunts, like the, like the wine. Uh, and I think, you know, it's just the ambition to, to try a little bit of anything and, and it doesn't cost much in today's society with the emails, Twitter, everything else to, yeah. to try some new things. And it's, it's a pretty, pretty fun experience when it's all said and done. Even the zoo was fun because it was losing $600,000. So we figured, you know, when you're a kid, yeah, everybody takes a kid to the zoo. When, take, when you go, when you are a kid, when you take your kid, when you take your grandkids. So three times in your life. So we try to get people there day in, day out. But they pretty much have the 2 to 12-year-old. So how do we get more people? That's how you pay for that deficit. So we started, well, what, what do young people want who don't have kids? And we came up with booze. Yeah, they like alcohol. So we started Zoo Brew, where they could come out at night, no kids allowed, and uh, we had a band, and the animals were all out. It was a great date night, 
And last year they sold $250,000 just in booze. I mean, it turned it around right away. The other one, we didn't want to spend a lot of, you know, you can't spend a lot of money. So, so we, we were brainstorming, what do we do for uh, making money? And what's the one thing that a zoo has that we have for free? Hmm. Poop. Yeah, every animal poops, right? So we started selling tiger poop because we realized that when deer, white-tailed deer smelled tiger poop, they thought it was a predator and they'd stay away from your garden. So we stole, sold tiger poops for a buck for 20 bucks or a, a gallon for 20 bucks and made $25,000 that year just in selling tiger poop when it's all said and done. So where there's a will, there's a way. Um, but there's still always failures. I, I remember after the, during the zoo, I had a call from the botanical center. It was having the same problems. They couldn't get people in. So they said, well, you come brainstorm. So I sat around a table with five people and I knew everybody but one. And lo and behold, I said, you know, they can you give us some ideas? So just like I'm doing now, you and I are talking, I just fire an idea as all I could. But I didn't realize that the one sitting over here was the editorial writer for the Des Moines Register. Now, not just the Des Moines Register, the Des Moines Sunday Register. He wrote the big editorial that's on the top of the page that if you're a public official, you get fired if your name's in that thing. Well, I didn't think much about it. I left on Sunday morning. The headline was, Save the Botanical Center. How does a big thinker think? And the first thing was, grow a marijuana display. See, I was ahead of my time. The other one said, get a Venus flytrap big enough to suck down a cow. Or the dome does kind of look like a breast, so let's do a, a cancer therapy place here to get people through. My wife said, you didn't do that, did you? I, I mean, I failed. They, but they thought, you know, this guy didn't get fired, so let's try some crazy ideas. They rebuilt it, and today it's one of the best botanical centers in the Midwest. So, wow. you know, again, you're, you're going to fail. That's the, that's the lesson in all this. Failure is the first step to success, and when you do – Learn from it. Don't bet the farm when you're, you know, on something that if you do fail, you lose everything. Uh, but find ways, take just a little bit and try to leverage it up to make new, new and bigger success. Wow. Again, I have never met anyone who has, well, I guess I've met one person who worked at a zoo, but never anyone who ran a zoo. When you, when you get the call from the governor <clears throat> and, and you accept the position, what was like your first plan of action. What did you say? Okay, here's where we're going to start. Well, you walk into a, to a facility that everybody, you know, they had no money because it was run by the city. They were getting budget cuts. Everybody's tight on money. And I had to convince them that uh, by doing crazy things like zoo brew and, and the poop and, and, uh, you know, those sort of things that if we could make them more money, they could spend more money. They would get more in salary. They could buy a better facility for the animals all of a sudden it worked. You know, I, I, again, I raised cows and pigs. I figured giraffe aren't that much different, but uh, ultimately we, it, it was trying to figure out, especially nonprofits. Most nonprofits are always yelling, we're going to close if you don't give us money, is that you try to raise something called an endowment. And what that is, is money that you set aside that only you say uh, to a big donor, you give us a million dollars and we're not going to spend it today. We're going to put it on interest and we're going to spend 5% a year so that if we can accumulate enough of those millions, we did about 12 million before I left, then there's money there that will keep the operating side of the zoo running forever. You're never going to have, even in COVID this year, they had enough money to get through it because they had that endowment. And that probably was the, is analyzing the business model to see what you, what you really need when it's all said and done. Wow. And did you learn about things like endowments or really how to be in charge of a company in college? I had no or? idea. I went out and I went out and talked to who I thought was successful. 
success breeds success. So if you're trying to succeed in, in a new business or something you don't know about, go find people who have succeeded and just go, Hey, you know, tell me your story. Cause people like me like to tell the story when there's success because you get to relive the excitement and the fun of what that success felt like. So I talked to a lot of people and and our art center had a big endowment. They didn't charge anything. They, they had no admission. And I thought, how does they do that? So I'd go talk to him. He said, well, we got an endowment. We worked on somebody for about 15 years. They were close to death and we knew they had a lot of money. And all of a sudden they gave us all this money and wanted us to do this endowment. So I thought, well, okay. So it took four or five years, uh, you know, to get the word out. But then people started putting it in their life insurance policies. They put it toward the endowment rather than just giving money to pay salaries or the others. But by having money and having operating money for the zoo, they then could spend money on bigger exhibits, new exhibits that excited people to come in over and over and over and again. Now, all of a sudden, you, you're the second largest cultural attraction in the state, and you are, are uh, self-sufficient. You're in the black. So now you can uh, live forever and, and really have a fun, fun facility. How do you, I guess, or what advice would you give to someone to help them stop filtering the big audacious ideas like how do we make it so for example you see the art center they're not charging people how do we replicate that how do you help someone use that same system in their life um i, I like to i like to take the ideas and have some fun with let people laugh and knock it down to tell so that i can figure out how to how to change it give you an example mega millions when i work for the lottery they're trying to find a way to really shine the jackpot. How do we really do something over the top that people talk about us? And I was driving home and I looked up and I thought, what the heck? The moon had, you know, has just a little sliver of a fingernail at the end sometimes and it's dark. I thought, what if we could, what if we could find a laser or a big spotlight and shine the mega millions jackpot amount on the dark side of the moon where people can see it all night. We'd own the moon. It'd be like a jackpot. Well, of course I got laughed at. It was one of the, but I talked to a lot of different people, uh, scientists and, and physicists and everybody else. And they said, well, you can't get through the atmosphere. But as I keep thinking about that, there's a million dollar idea you can have. Now it's crazy, but what that did was help me in other ideas. So I could help Powerball then on the marketing committee to, to uh, do different things with Powerball to drive the sales there to that $1.5 billion jackpot one year. So it, I think it's trying to be over the top because it's like, uh, uh, you know, you get it way up there. You may end down here, but that's still a lot higher than you were when you started when you wouldn't even try it. Right. Here's, a, here's another idea that is a million dollar idea to me that's probably just as crazy. And I haven't got it done yet, but I know it's going to work. When you're on an interstate and you're driving down through the, through the, and looking around, what's the one thing that you want, especially families? I mean, you have to get gas. So most, most stops have gas. You have to get, uh, you have to get uh, food, but most places have food. Well, there's a little town called, um, in, in Iowa called Gimana, Iowa, and they, they are at exit 88. And they called and said, would you help us figure out how to get people? We're about an eighth of a mile off, and we can't get people off the interstate, 60,000 cars. And I figured, what's the third thing you need, everybody needs? That's restrooms, but not any restroom. They should have clean restrooms. So I said, build a great big honking building and say, we've got the cleanest restrooms in the world. And you decorate each one differently. You have an outhouse to take pictures. You sell t-shirts. I got pooped out in Menlo. I got PO'd in Menlo. You have a place for the dogs to go. Yeah. Um, you have places to rest. You sell Tootsie Rolls, Babe Ruth's, uh, uh, you know, things like that out front. But you got to 
perfect free marketing idea because you can send, uh, put out signs all over the U.S. that says, urinate at exit 88. <laughs> See how easy that would be when cost you anything. You bring in a king to sit on the throne when you launch it. I mean, you'd be on every late night talk show forever, but it still feels the need, you know, and that would be an easy one. Someone on the interstate system should build the cleanest and best restrooms in the world. Did they ever? a million dollar idea. Did they ever take you up on that idea? No, they did not. They didn't want to be known as the poop capital of the world. <laughs> ah, well. Well, I mean, if you can sell poop like you did at the zoo, that's not that's a bad true. thing. That's <laughs> you're, true. You're talking there, man. <laughs> so you, you run the zoo, you help them become profitable, and then you move on to the lottery. How did that actually happen? Um, because the governor was helping me on the zoo, or suggested I take the zoo and, and I work closely with them, uh, I get a call one day, say, hey, the lottery director is retiring and lottery is a lot of marketing and sales. And you can tell that's what I really, really enjoy doing. I love operations. I love business, but marketing and sales are great. So I go out uh, to the to the lottery and uh, thinking I'm, you know, I'm ready to kill it. And I th this will be fun because you're giving away a lot of money. I got to give away a billion dollars in prizes over the tenure, the 10 year tenure I have. But two years into it, life changes. And this is the other lesson that I've learned is you never really know what's going to happen the next day. When you're a public servant, obviously any day you go in, you make a decision, the wrong decision could be your last because you usually can be fired by the governor pretty fast. So I learned that we had a winner of a hot lotto jackpot. This was a game much like Powerball. About 17 states pooled their money together, played like Powerball. Uh, but somebody won $16.5 million one night in Iowa and they didn't come in and claim it. And you get 365 days a day, six months later, they didn't come in. Ultimately in November, we had a lot of people saying, oh, that was my husband. They're in the mafia and I haven't seen them, but when they come in, you better arrest them. Or somebody said, oh, the clerk stole my ticket. That was my ticket. But nobody knew the serial number and the things that we need for our security until we got the call in November. And they said, hey, um, I've got the numbers. And our person at the front desk said, what are they? He said the numbers and they said, hmm. He might have me. He said, just send me the money. I'll send you the ticket. Ah, ding, ding, ding. Something seems screwy here. Well, long story short, that guy had the ticket from somebody who worked for a vendor to the lottery called the Multi-State Lottery Association. And uh, that ticket um, uh, proved out to be uh, his demise because he bought it in our state. And you have to recognize that you have to announce who you are when you come in and claim the ticket. He, they didn't want to. Um, and ultimately, we found him guilty. He rigged the computer that drew the numbers. And it took us about five or six years when it was all said and done. But when he was on the stand, he had his brother come in and testify for him. And his brother said, that can't be my, my brother, Eddie, because he don't eat hot dogs. Well, the guy was three to 400 pounds. Associated Press said, that's screwy. So they put it in their news feed. And lo and behold, his brother was also involved in it. And all of a sudden, the Iowa case became a national case. And we got convictions out of three different people out of the deal, and we cracked this largest lottery fraud in U.S. history. So my point is integrity is really important in any job you have. Being honest, fair, having oversight, you know, not, uh, not taking advantage of the company, um, you know, following the rules. I, I, I have a lot more respect for the IT department. I have a lot more respect for the, um, for the accountants and the legal side who day-to-day -day call and say, hey, you didn't fill out your travel report quite right. Well, you know, who cares? You know, that's not that big a deal. Well, it is for the IRS and the others. And so I learned something new in all of that, even at the old age of 
of uh, being at this lottery director. So that's kind of how I wrapped up their career, but it was fun giving away money and also fun to crack that largest lottery case. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I want to break it down a little bit. Uh, going back to the moment where, you know, you hear a winner has been announced or, or whatnot, but they don't come in and claim it. What sort of things are going on in your mind? And at what point do you start thinking, okay, we got to start doing some investigation? Um, I think that I, I, we've had a lot of winners. We have a lot of jackpot winners. And I love the stories when they first come in to meet with them. And, uh, you know, we always say, first thing you do now when you get your money, uh, um, don't spend it all right away. You know, wait 30 days before you buy your first big purchase because you may want the yellow versus the red Lamborghini. <laughs> but in this case, it just kind of felt weird from the beginning. But then it became a story and fun. And the press really picked up on it because we were getting 20 or 30 people who then said, that's my ticket. And we still have two or three say, that was my ticket. That wasn't his ticket uh, to come in and claim. And then it started getting real serious when the person said that was my ticket and I'm not coming in to claim it. You send me the money. We just knew something was fraudulent when all that said and done. And then uh, when it gets that serious, you realize you got to let the uh, legal and the uh, investigators take over. But when they brought the ticket in to say to claim, they had lawyers bring it in. I held it up in front of the camera. And all of a sudden, I heard all the cameras go with these zoom lenses. Well, the people who said they didn't have the serial number or the date it was bought or how many were bought, whether it's a quick pick or a manual play, I just put up all the evidence they had because they could see what it is. Then they called back and said, hey, I remember the serial number now, you know, that sort of thing. So then it really started getting crazy. And it was a, it was a tough one to justify because we call it the $80 billion gamble. We wrote a book on this, uh, the $80 billion gamble, because that's how much money spent on lotteries across the United States today. You figure $10 billion on music, $10, $12 billion on the NF, you know, all, all sports are about 20 billion. Uh, movies are about 10, 12 billion. If you add all of those together, still it isn't much money as what people spend on lottery tickets in a given year. So if we made the wrong calculation on this case, we were gambling with all, all these different States across the United States money. And that, that uh, cost me some friends and a little bit of reputation on that side. But we kept saying we want the game fair and honest. Our governor said the same thing. We want the game fair and honest. And when all said and done, I can go to sleep thinking we did the right thing. How do you deal with such scrutiny like that? Uh, it's, it's, it's like we said, you know, everybody's not, not happy and successful. I don't care. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, anybody that you know that is a multimillionaire or a billionaire, uh, they might have a lot of money, but that always, doesn't always bring happiness and they have their day-to-day -day challenges. There were some crazy day-to-day -day challenges because I was worried that what we were doing and in, in barking, Hey, something's wrong here. Does anybody have any information? Bring it forward that, uh, we might get people that didn't want to buy the lottery tickets and a lot of good causes to get money from lotteries across the United States would lose. And, that, you know, when, he, when they completely confessed and we put the, they put the handcuffs on them and put them in prison, uh, that was a pretty good feeling because we then knew it would come to a close. People don't have closures in big cases like this. So I think we had, we had a better outcome than most people have if you have a murder, a rape, a, a, a heavy assault, because it's always appealed, clear up, and it takes 100 years to do it. And you never really feel, was it, well, I wonder what really happened in that. We know what happened. So we could fix it at that point too, which was really good for the industry. Wow. Uh, how did you go about kind of managing 
your company as all this is going on? Because obviously you can't just stop your day-to-day operations, right? That's right. Uh, it's back to having good people. Everybody did their jobs while we had investigators doing, doing those. Um, I think the other is we kept them fully informed whenever we could. We made sure all employees heard what was going to be in the news. There's nothing worse than having something come up in the news, good, bad, or indifferent. If, if uh, you're an employee and your boss and the company has not told you that it's coming out. So we made sure that anytime we saw a press release or anything, any breaking news on it, we shipped it to the employees so they saw it before the before it was in the paper. So they understood the background. Then they could answer it too in a very truthful way. We we worked really hard to make sure we told the facts. Something was bad. We told it bad, good, bad, and uh, ugly. But this is what it is. And our job is to make sure that these games are fair and honest. And by God, that's what we're going to do. I think employees, especially nowadays, they have really fine-tuned BS gauges that they can uh, really, yeah. you know, they can they can sift through the the nonsense, and it's it's nice to have. I speak from experience. It's nice to have an employer who tells it like it is. And I've had a lot of people have dealt with this during COVID nineteen, where you know things aren't doing so well, or there's fear and and such. And having an employer come out and say, "Hey, this is the honest state of things," it takes a lot off the minds of the the employees. I can say from experience. Yeah. If you're having a bad year in a company and numbers are down, you want to tell them, you know, because we've got to work together. We got to turn it because the employees will rally and those kind of deals. I'm a, I'm a hundred percent with you. I don't, you know, I think we did the best uh, that we could and all of that. You know, some might argue that, that we could have done it differently one way or another, but uh, it's all said and done. I, I also learned as you see politicians and this was a deal with Eddie, the guy that actually did the fraud when you get away with telling a little fib or doing a little bit of fraud, uh, you know, it's ah, just kind of an honest mistake or whatever. You got away with it, that they do it a little more. I, I have not met anybody, whether it's a church, whether it's a school district secretary, that's taking a little bit of money out of the till here or there that didn't then have to take a little bit more and then a little bit more. And all of a sudden, boom, uh, they get busted with a big one. And everybody says, I, that was the last person I ever expected. And it usually is the last person you ever suspect in a, in a fraud. Yeah. And uh, I would also add, generally, the last person you expect is yourself. So that's a good lesson in, uh, you know, just watch yourself and, and don't even give an inch because I don't know if you've ever read that book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie or whatnot, right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I love that book because it's it's such a true... Uh, uh, maxim, I guess, where if you give an inch, you know, the universe, other forces, adversaries, whatever it is, they're going to take a mile, you know, so. The, the thing, other thing I learned is there's a triangle that the American certified fraud examiners uh, uh, give. Three reasons that have to come together that someone commits fraud in a system and why you want checks and balances. Two people, one person writes the purchase order, the other person should write the check. And then you, give, you don't have people controlling the checkbook and the POs. But the first one is financial need. We all want more money, but sometimes an employee who's a really good employee has a kid who busts through their, their uh, credit cards or, or maybe they got a gambling or a drinking problem, divorce, you know, they need the money. Well, that doesn't create the fraud. The second one is opportunity. If they have complete control of the checkbook or two or three things and they have the opportunity and along with the financial need, that's a pretty good, pretty good reason why they might might create fraud. And the final piece is rationalization. Even though they have the opportunity, a lot of people have opportunity to steal something. You have the opportunity to walk into any store and steal something. You may have the financial need, but you have to rationalize why you, why you do that. 
rationalization might be in, at work is that they're working me too hard. They're making a lot of money. I don't, they're not going to miss a little bit of money. Uh, or in a store, you know, that store is making a lot of money. They're not going to miss if I shoplift this or that. But I, I, a good example of this, let's say you go to a mall and throw a good, good um, experiment, throw a mall, throw a hundred bucks down in the middle of the floor and just stand back and watch. Some people will walk back, kind of see it and say, hey, I'm not involved. I don't want to be involved by it. Others will look at it and they'll think, well, somebody probably dropped that. Should I, maybe, you know, some might just turn it in. You know, that would be, seem like the right thing to do. But yet, you know, if I turn it in, you think the person who gets it is going to think about it or tell the boss they're going to do it? Or maybe I just take it because they haven't missed it yet. It's still sitting there. That's the kind of rationalization that people go through once they have the opportunity and they have the financial need. If they break that little devil on the shoulder, breaks them for the rationale, then they've created fraud. Now they're really going down the slippery slope. Yeah. Um, I can think of so many experiences in my life that aren't necessarily uh, financially or work related, but I, I feel like this triangle just kind of translates in every instance where you're trying to be better than you are and you fail or, or come up short in, in an ethical or moral way. And I think it's a very good way to describe, you know, if you just don't, just don't listen, you know, long enough to be able to do what you know you need to do, then it just works out better for you. <clears throat> but you, I've never met anybody that's absolutely pure. Um, but the point is you try to be the best you can. You should yeah. be the best you can. If you can, you know, get through that rationalization of, wait a minute, I just step back for a second. This isn't right. And mm -hmm. if I get caught, I'm not going to be able to sleep at night. And I wanted to be able to sleep at night as I did this case. Yeah. I love that. Sleeping at night. Uh, if you can make so you can sleep at night, I think you'll do most things good in your life. That's Absolutely. It. Good point. Uh, I wanted to ask, so thinking about our audience, um, I'm guessing that most of them won't end up being CEOs in their lifetime or, or whatnot, but a good majority of my audience might be interested in starting a business or a side hustle as an entrepreneur. Uh, what is your most important pieces of advice to someone when they're thinking about starting a new company or starting a side venture? Um, well, the nice thing about starting your own company, this is how I became my, the first president and CEO. It was my company. I can name myself whatever the heck I want. So, that, you know, and once you get that title, the next job you apply for, whatever you do, then you can say, well, I'm a CEO there. I want to be a CEO in your company. But I think the two things are, we've talked one a little bit. One is not betting the bank. Um, you know, take 10%. If you're working for a company now, start your company late at night, start it on the weekends until you can get enough cash flow. That is cash you're going you're gonna to bring in versus the cash you spend out to break even. Once you do that, then when you go in business for yourself, you're on solid footing. If you don't do that, then you're taking all the money that you have and you're going backwards with the monies that you have. Then once you start hit that first project, second project, and you're making money, take 10% of that and put into, you know, big companies call it research and development. I call it risk money, gambling money. I want to, I'm going to look what else I can do. What can I add to my company to add it to the, to the next one? And third, make sure when you do start, you've got enough cash flow to get you through at least a year, if not two or three. Um, cash flow basically means you have money in the bank that if you don't get any money back in, you do it. But too many people are too cash insufficient when they, when they get started. And if you can not take business partners, don't, but some people need business partners to get started. It may be your, your cousin, your mom, your dad, your grandpa, that I need a little money to get, start the business. 
if you can do it from a bank, that's the best way. Um, I had my, one of my lawyers told me, uh, take as few partners as you can, because if you take friends and, and a lot of people are successful, you know, you know uh, Gates, whoever, as you talk about uh, success, two or three partners to get together, but everybody's going to have an idea and you have to, you have to, especially if they've loaned you money, uh, you've got to take their advice because they loaned you money and they're going to want their money back at some point, or they're going to want to profit back at some point. So I think those are the, those are some of the thoughts to begin with. Uh, but that's the business background. The big thing is follow your dream, but do it in a responsible or in a risk responsible, uh, a manner of not betting the whole, whole take, you know, set aside some money, keep building until you can put it out there and talk to everybody you can. If you've got an idea, talk to everybody you can say, what do you think about this? And because I, I, I had an idea coming through college is to do a little plastic thing that would open a pop can, you know, these pop cans here, they used to, you used to pop them and throw the top away. But I saw women trying to do it and breaking fingernails. I thought, geez, I had a bite one of that. I could sell those, you know, airlines, that sort of thing. And I asked my professor, who was the one that uh, got me kind of excited about entrepreneurship and that sort of thing. I said, what if somebody steals it? Shouldn't I patent it right away? He said, look, if they steal it, you had it had a success. You want to, you know, you can create another one. Everybody's got another good idea in life. And so I always figure, you know, uh, talk to as many people as somebody steals it. You come up with a better one or you take it. But once you do get the thing going, then, of course, you want a trademark patent to do all the right things with it. Uh, I just got to say your risk responsible phrase is super important. Very key. Uh, as the host of the hard thing podcast, I get challenged by people all the time to do, Hey, come, come do this with me. It's, it's a hard thing. Even though it's something that doesn't interest me, I don't want to do it. Uh, basically what I got from you is be strategic when you follow your dream. Don't just quit your yeah. day job and, and start, you know, like bridge the gap or just be responsible. So. Something you love and find that unique niche that don't, that you know that you can do, um, so that you, so that you like doing it when you can and you become the expert in it. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you an easy one that is an offshoot. Um, when I was doing TV production, I wanted to do something so I had an asset when it's done. I was I was consulting basically, selling these HBO free preview deals we talked about earlier. So I thought, well, what's the number one TV show on TV today? It was World Wrestling Federation. Well. What other sport do you do you play when you're in high school and younger and maybe college, but then goes south? That was wrestling was one. Soccer. They weren't paying anybody pro. They said, let's do full contact indoor soccer. <laughs> so we rented an ice arena and produced four shows called Soccer Slam. I still have you if you do S-O-C-K-E-R for soccer, Soccer Slam. And we got it on Fox Sports World. We got it on uh, Galavision, but we got busy with HBO. Later, we found out that the Sega uh, game group uh, was produced a show called Soccer Slam, and it looked an awful lot like ours. So we struck a deal with them that they could have the game rights. We still have the TV rights. But how fun was that? I lost some money. I, it wasn't the biggest success, but man, was it fun. And, and uh, they just wrote a big article just recently on it again, reviving it after 20 years. So there's a crazy idea for you. I, I love how you have these tremendous ideas, but you make them happen. And I think that's where most people fall short is in the execution. So, uh, yeah. Well, success breeds success. Find the one thing, make a lot of money with it, and then take pieces of it and do some crazy stuff that you've always wanted to do. 
<laughs> that is excellent advice. Terry, I, I've enjoyed our conversation so much. It's been fun hearing your experiences and, and, and learning, actually getting some actionable insights. Um, continuing on that vein, to leave our audience with something before you go, what one to three action items, based on our conversation, what one to three action items would you give our audience to do today or this week to improve their lives? Uh, every time you think of a new idea or you look around, you know, every time I go to work or go somewhere, if it took me 15 minutes, I want to make it 14. Write down the ideas because you forget them. You know, when you wake up at night, uh, Jim Berger used to have a marker in his, in his shower because when he woke up in the morning, he was a head of travel host. Uh, he'd, he'd write it down in the shower, but write all the ideas down, just put them aside so, so you don't lose them or write it on your computer is even better and just, just have them there and review them once a quarter. One of those might be the spark. Uh, the second is, if asked, um, somebody needs help and no one wants to volunteer, raise your hand. I don't know a lot about it, but I'm here to learn, sir. I'm here to learn, ma'am. And uh, you will you will find yourself uh, getting opportunities that no one else gets because you were there to to uh, to try it. And and finally, uh, don't forget the personal side of it of writing a note of thanks to someone or friends and people that you saw sent them an email saying, Hey, congratulations. Good job. Anytime you can give a positive message to someone else that will pay you back many, many times. I really like that last one. That's one that I don't do enough of. And I think I, I need to try that a little bit more. And it wasn't my idea. There was a president <laughs> of a bank that when I was at the zoo, he was a sponsor. And once every other month we'd have a promote something happened. I would get this note and I'd say, he'd say, I'm really impressed. Thanks. Good, good job. And that just that simple made my day every time. And I always remembered him. Oh, awesome. Uh, Terry, I'm going to put those up in the show notes, but how can our audience reach out to you, support you and see what you're up to? It's pretty easy. Uh, it's my, my final gig is I do public speaking on new ideas and also on the Eddie Tipton story, the fraud story we talked about. So the website is terryspeaks.com, T-E-R-R-Y speaks.com. You can see all sorts of things there. Uh, you also can link to my, I have two books. Uh, if you just link at Amazon, Terry Rich, uh, or search it, uh, you'll see the two books, Dare to Dream, Dare to Act on Ideas, and the $80 billion gamble, which was the fraud case. So that's the easiest way, but in either either case, just keep doing what you're doing right now, watching podcasts like this, and uh, get motivated, and uh, it's better to have tried and failed than to do nothing at all and succeeded, because happiness happens on the way to success. <laughs> Thanks so much, Terry. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. It's been fun. Uh, I'm going to try the eyebrow trick you, you showed me. Hopefully I don't get tired, but I think I'll, I think I'll make it. But thank you so much. Absolutely. What did I tell you guys? What a fun conversation. Terry, he's, he's very insightful. I really enjoyed listening to him personally. Uh, I have a lot of business aspirations myself, and he gave me a lot to think about. And he gave me a lot to think about specifically as far as marketing and thinking of those big ideas and not being afraid to try them out and to test them and to, to do them. Uh, so I would encourage all of you to do Terry's action items and just take those big ideas and try and put them to the test. Tell everyone you know about them and get their feedback, but, but just try, make them happen. Uh, I also want to encourage you to support the podcast. I love doing this and I know that these episodes are helping you. So if you want to support the podcast, first thing you can do, subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And if you're on YouTube, hit that notification bell so you're notified when episodes are released. Again, we have episodes on Mondays and Thursdays. On Thursdays, what you're going to hear is me and my co-host Ty Crockett doing these action items that the guests give us, as well as giving each other challenges and really putting ourselves to the test. It's called The Forge. The Thursday episode is called The Forge. And it's, it's called that because, like I said, we put our to the test 
we put ourselves to the test and we put ourselves under the heat to really see if we're strong enough. And, and by doing that, we make ourselves stronger. Next, I'd like to invite you to uh, check out the, the shop on thehardthingpodcast.com slash shop. We have gear where you can represent the podcast. We have hats, beanies, masks, stickers, coats, shirts, all the things. Go there and get that special gift for that special someone if you want, or just buy it for yourself. Either way, it's a great thing to do. Uh, I'd also like to encourage you to go get a free audiobook today. You can get a free audiobook from Audible at audibletrial.com slash thehardthingpodcast. Audible offers over 180,000 titles on all sorts of genres. I love audiobooks. It keeps me sane while I'm working eight hours a day at my day job and then even more on my podcast. So go get your free audio audiobook today. audibletrial.com slash thehardthingpodcast. Get that today. I'd also like to encourage you to help us raise money for Operation Underground Railroad. You see, they're a nonprofit organization that goes undercover to rescue kids from sex trafficking. I, I bet you can imagine being in a place where you know no one, but the people you do know are there to hurt you. Uh, daily torture of physical, spiritual, emotional sense, and you're a child. You don't have any options. That's what Operation Underground Railroad seeks to destroy. They, they go and find these sex traffickers, they put them behind bars, they rescue these kids, and they put them in excellent homes where they have a future. So if you want to help them, go to OURrescue.org, learn about their message, get involved, and donate some money. I, I love this podcast. I love the conversations I've had and the people I've met. And I know if you really listen and, and you put to action what these people are saying, your life will change. So last thing I can tell you until Thursday is keep doing hard things because we will overcome average. Hey guys, one quick announcement for today's show, and you might have heard this already, even in today's episode, but... Uh, I have an awesome opportunity for you guys once in a lifetime. You have the opportunity to have dinner with myself and a covert CIA operative. That's right, an undercover spy. Uh, my guest, Andrew Bustamante, has been gracious enough to offer himself up <laughs> uh, as guest for a dinner with myself and one lucky audience member. So if you want to sign up for that, make sure you hit the link in the show notes below. As well, you can go to Instagram and hit the link in my bio at the Hard Thing Podcast. This is first come first surf, and there's only one slot. So whoever signs up first will have the opportunity to come to Utah and have dinner with myself and Andrew Bustamante. It's an exciting opportunity. It's one that you'll be able to brag about to your friends of being able to sit down, having dinner with an undercover secret agent. So don't waste any time. Go ahead and sign up in the link in the show notes or go to Instagram at The Hard Thing Podcast and click the link in my bio and you'll find all the relevant information there. Uh, so look forward to having dinner with you.